Hi, this is Ava Blackwell. You may remember me as Osnalis on Star Trek Discovery, and you are listening to Trek Untold. Hello and welcome to Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. The aliens of Star Trek have always inspired imagination, and the franchise just wouldn't be the same without them. Really, can you imagine watching Star Trek when all you see is a bunch of humanoid flesh bags running around? Boring. To play an alien on Star Trek, it requires something special to not only put on the makeup and the prosthetics, but to lose yourself to a character that is completely foreign what you normally see every day, let alone see ever in person. Our guest today is the versatile Ava Blackwell, a model turned actress who is also becoming more involved in the stunt world, and a person who you would think would be better suited to be in a Starfleet uniform than wearing alien makeup. She's a beautiful woman, but her face is covered up by one of the most peculiar-looking aliens in Star Trek Discovery, the Osnalis. Now, whether that's the name of the alien that Ava plays or their species, well, we're going to try to figure that one out today because it's a bit of a mystery, but all you really need to know about the Osnalis is that this thing is one funky-looking creature, and it's definitely one of the more difficult ones to play. Osnalis serves on board the Discovery and has been in several episodes of the show so far, and we might get some insight as to whether or not we may see this character again in Season 3. Ava is going to tell us today all about how she became the Osnalis, the challenges of playing an alien with such huge prosthetics, what she learned from Doug Jones, who plays Saru in the show, of course, and much more about her career in TV and film. She also got to spend a little bit of time in some Klingon makeup from Discovery. We'll talk about that, too. This was a pretty fun episode for me to record with Ava, since she's crossed over into a lot of other worlds that I'm pretty familiar with outside of Trek, and that led to some discussions that I don't normally have with the typical guests on this Star Trek-centric series. I think you're going to enjoy hearing about the many experiences Ava has had in her career so far, and you'll see why I think the only place for her career to go from here is way up. Before we begin this episode, I'd like to remind you to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Trek Untold. All one word, no spaces. If you want to check out some of our Trek Untold merchandise, you can also do that on our Teespring store, which you can find on teespring.com slash stores slash Trek Untold, where we've got shirts, hoodies, mugs, stickers, tote bags, and all sorts of other things available to proudly display how much you like this podcast. If you're having trouble finding the link, just check us out again on social media, and you'll see us posting about it from time to time there as well. You can also support our show by visiting patreon.com slash trekuntold. If you're already following us or offering us your support, thank you for your help. Most of all, if you can't support us financially, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you're listening to the show. This helps more people find out about the show and helps spread awareness of Trek Untold. I'd also like to make a quick shout out to our friends at Triple Fiction Productions, who make some great 3D printed Star Trek inspired products for toys and people, but you'll hear more about them a little bit later on. Now, without further ado, let's beam up this week's guest. Computer, access interview file. Affirmative. Initiating program. Welcome back to Trek Untold, and now joining me on the other side of the line, we have all the way from Toronto, Ava Blackwell. Ava, how's it going today? Hey, I'm good. Thanks so much for having me on. How are you? I'm doing all right. So we're going to jump right into our interview now, and I'm going to give you the standard first question I ask all of our Starfleet personnel and other Star Trek guests we have on the show, and that is, what is your earliest memory of Star Trek? Oh, it's so great. I, um, 
my mom is actually quite a big Trekkie. And one of the things that we would always do at night would be to watch Enterprise. And I was like maybe four or five. And I always, almost every night that it was on, would fall asleep with her playing with my hair, my head in her lap, and just falling asleep with like visions of the Enterprise floating through my uh, through my dreams. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually a really cute memory. And it's just kind of funny that your first Star Trek, you're saying, was Star Trek Enterprise. Yeah, that's what my mom followed. Yeah. So what do you remember about it as a kid? Do you remember anything that happened on the show? Oh, she also watched The Next Generation, too. So we had both. Well, I remember my dad is military. So I don't, I like, I was too young to really grasp any of it. And it's funny now kind of going back and watching the show now as an adult and just realizing, like, all these cool aliens and everybody that I was so enamored with, how they, like, just understanding what they really stood for now and that was just integrated into my being as a child you know what i mean yeah totally so you mentioned uh your, your father was in the military and uh i read that your family moved around a lot as well when you were younger so can you tell our listeners uh, a little bit about what your childhood was like and what it was like to live that lifestyle yeah it was pretty crazy i, I was lucky that my mom stayed in calgary which is uh kind of midwest canada so i was able to have sort of a home base there and i would go follow my dad all over the world um, so I kind of lived a dual lifestyle of having my friends and family in, in Calgary and then going and always having to integrate into new communities and explore sort of unknown worlds and, <laughs> and fit into new social settings, uh, around the world with my dad, which was pretty cool. And what were some of the places that you went to? Well, all over Canada, every small town in Canada that, that you can imagine. And then when we were a little older, we went to, uh, uh, Germany. Just outside of Munchen Gladbach, there's a little, there was a base that was part of NATO, the Allied Rapid Reaction Corps in uh, Cologne, just outside of Cologne, and, which is Cologne in English. And um, we went to England, and then that's when I studied in Prague at the Prague Film School, which is a division of FAMU, and I also studied in Holland, in the Netherlands. So not to jump too far ahead, because you just mentioned Prague Film School, and I definitely want to ask you about that. But before we jump into that area, I want to know, what did little Ava want to be when she was growing up? Did she always want to be an actress? I always wanted to be an actress. My mom was uh, really involved in our uh, church in Calgary, and they had a really great uh, theater program. And I, I did everything I could with theater uh, as a kid. And every time I followed my dad around, one of the ways I would get into the community was to do whatever kind of community theater or drama camps or whatever was around. And it was my way of connecting with the world. So yeah, I always wanted to be an actor. And that seems like for someone who travels around a lot as a kid, it seems like going into the theater is the kind of place you can just be accepted right away and just make, basically make a new batch of friends everywhere you go. Pretty much. And I was also a musician. I was never sure if I was going to be a musician or an actor, but uh, between the two, I always had a ton of friends and a ton of cool, interesting people that you could just connect to via the, the story or the art or the piece you were playing. It was, it was cool. Now, you mentioned that you did study at the Prague Film School and then in Holland. Uh, so tell us about your experiences there and what were some of the most valuable lessons that you picked up in your time there? Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, the Netherlands, uh, Holland was a youth ambassador program through the Rotary Club. And it was my third year applying. I just kept reapplying every year to see if I could get in. And the third time was a charm. So the first thing I learned of, about that was just persistence pays off. Um, and sometimes there's no reason you don't get picked other than that. There's different requirements every year. 
And I lived in Holland with four different Dutch families, and I learned the language and the culture through them. And I would have to give presentations around the Netherlands about the, the connection between Canada and the Netherlands and my experience with their culture. So it was actually kind of trek in a way where I was <laughs> like seeking out new life and new civilizations. Yes, exactly. And and then presenting them to different groups back home and and in the Netherlands and just learning about their culture through like experience and immersion, which was very cool. And I learned a lot about just directness and tact, that that fine line that the Dutch walk so well. Mm. Yeah, they're really I really love I really love that about the Dutch. They're so direct, but not in a, there's no punishment involved. They're just, that's, it's like just blunt honesty is just one of the best features about the Dutch. Was it a real culture shock for you to be emerged uh, in that world between, you know, Canada and then Holland? Not really. I mean, it's pretty similar, um, but it was weird. It was about like n- maybe nine months in where I had a few different interactions and you just really realize like, this is truly a different culture. These people have grown up in a totally different world, even though on the outside, it looks pretty similar, like, I mean, predominantly Caucasian culture and lots of, and it's Christian based and, you know, uh, very similar um, on the surface, but then deeper, it, it it's quite different. Does it make sense? So it was like a little bit of a boomerang effect where I was like, whoa, this is really different about seven or eight or nine months in. Yeah, uh, that's an interesting way to look at it. You also got into modeling at some point as well. Now, when did that happen? Was that while you were studying internationally? Well, I was always kind of, I was a late bloomer with modeling. I was always tall so, and, and like, I guess somewhat pretty. Um, so people always told me that I should model, but I kept getting rejected by the modeling world. And it was just too harsh and, and too kind of um, not catty, but I wasn't like cool enough to be in the modeling world when I was uh, 16 or 17 because I grew I didn't grow up with in like the world of fashion at all and I didn't really have a sense of fitting into that world so I always tried and kept getting spit out and spit out and spit out and then it wasn't until after I graduated Prague film school actually uh a little bit later when most of my peers were finishing their modeling career is kind of when mine started so it started in my in my early 20s and so it wasn't really for you basically what you're saying you just weren't really too into it the people around were not the kind you wanted to be near uh, not at the time and where I was, but actually like towards the end of my stay in Prague, I found a bunch of really cool people and like fashion designers and stuff. And I kind of found my fashion tribe a little bit, um, which is funny because there's like, like sci-fi, there's tribes within the genre, right? So, uh, you kind of find your people and you, and I just found a couple really good designers. And when I came back to Canada, I studied with, uh, Stacey McKenzie. She's a, she's a fantastic, um, icon of fashion here in Canada. And she kind of took me under her wing and trained me and got me out on some runways. And that's when it really kind of became part of my career. Oh, very cool. Now yeah. I, want, I want to jump back into acting real quick. Uh, and yeah. I'd like to ask, what was your first professional acting gig? We're not talking like theater in towns. We're talking now you've, you're done with school. What is the first gig you're actually on set being filmed in something? I, I, it works very similar in the States where you go through the gamut of being non-union and stuff. But uh, I'll talk about my first professional, like if you want to say really professional gig that brought me into the union, that was 12 Monkeys. 
But before that, I had done a lot of work. I had already been in probably 75 films around the world at that point, but they were all, um, they were in Europe. They were in the gamut of like European films and stuff and commercials, et cetera. But the, the network television that brought me into the union on camera was 12 Monkeys. Yeah, I guess we're, let's talk about 12 Monkeys a little bit, because uh, that's yeah. an interesting show. It was on sci-fi. Uh, your uh-huh. episode was called Nature. Uh, that was also an episode that guest starred Christopher Lloyd, I believe. Yeah. Um, so now I believe your character, I'm trying to remember for sure, but I don't I don't think your character survives very long in this episode, though. Can you tell us a little about uh, what you remember from being on it? Oh, well, I'm actually a ghost um, in that in that uh, in that episode. I'm the character's name was Alabaster Woman, and I'm essentially an apparition that appears to uh, Jennifer Goines, Emily Hampshire's character and scares the crap out of her and points her in the direction of where she needs to go, basically. So I'm actually like, I'm, I'm bringing her a good message, but I just look super creepy while I'm doing it. (laughs) That's a good way to put it. (laughs) Which is, I think it's a great thing. Um, I'm, I'm pretty close with the showrunner. I love Terry. And he's also, he was on Star Trek. He had a little cameo in Star Trek a long time ago. Terry is doing really good things in the world. Uh, He was on, a Forbes list for one of the showrunners to watch as well. So congratulations, Terry. Just so you guys know, we're talking about uh, Terry Metalis, and he was on Star Trek Enterprise, which you watch as a kid, as we mentioned, and also at Star Trek yep. Voyager. Uh, in both of those, he was on production end, so he was an assistant on Voyager and uh, a production associate on Enterprise for basically the entire series. So that's that's really cool. Yeah, he's awesome. He's an awesome dude. We mentioned that episode that you're in has Christopher Lloyd. Did you get to spend any time with Christopher on set? I didn't. The days that I was on set, he wasn't there. But I did get to hang out with the Time Machine and Emily and a bunch of the prosthetics guys because I was in heavy prosthetics. It was sort of my like introduction into being in really heavy prosthetics. I had a blood rig and uh, around my neck. And I had a mask and a bunch of layering of flaky skin um, and stuff all over my hands. And a beautiful mask that they 3D printed. It was very, very cool. Well, clearly you must have liked wearing that prosthetic thing, or at least found it not too troublesome to wear, because you're going to be doing that in Star Trek later in your career. But yeah, walk us through essentially getting your first prosthetic session, and what did you think of it all? Well, I didn't... So when I did the audition, I auditioned for this part, and I didn't realize how much prosthetics were going to be involved, so I got it. Um, It was like a month later, I had actually just totally forgotten about the audition, and then my agent called and said, hey, are you interested in this part? I said, sure, of course. And I showed up, there was two makeup tests and uh, then two days on set. And my first makeup test, I was so sick. I had uh, gone out for dinner the night before and got some really bad food poisoning. So I was having, I know it was terrible. It was actually really terrible, but I made it through. And uh, Adrian and Steve, the prosthetics guys were like super understanding and super awesome about it. Um, And I was just basically laying in my trailer like sick between takes but um but the guys were super professional i mean prosthetics can be really tough uh i i have learned so much from my time with doug jones on on set he's been so generous with me uh just teaching me the ropes of everything and prosthetics for me they might be physically uncomfortable but they really help me bring a character to life like it's just such a gift and i love characters that have a lot of prosthetics because it's such a team effort. Uh, it's it's everybody bringing the character to life. And you're, you as the actor always are sort of the last piece in that where you really bring all the writing, makeup, everything to, to life. 
but um i love playing creatures it's just something i really love to do and i i'm really blessed and happy that i don't find prosthetics to be super difficult they are difficult and they are they're they're hard to wear and and they can it can be really long days but it's really really rewarding and we're going to talk a lot more about prosthetics. Don't you worry about that because uh, okay, yeah, cool. I got so many questions for you about that. But I do want to run down a little bit of some other stuff you worked on before you, we get to Star Trek. Uh, and that's, you know, you've, you've got a pretty diverse resume. As you mentioned, you've got over like 75 credits like, before you even got to 12 Monkeys. Um, and it, it was hard to even just pick out a few things. But you've been in some in- interesting sounding shorts, especially like that one uh, you did Figment 2015. Yeah. Uh, but the one I wanted to actually ask you about was uh, A Soldier's Farewell, which I imagine was probably more of a personal role for you considering your family and how you grew up. Can you tell us a little bit about A Soldier's Farewell? Yeah, well, that film is still... Um, we, that's a short that I did, and it's very close to my heart. That was uh, I helped to actually ultimately write it and uh, produce it and get it off the ground. And it's um, actually being pitched right now as a feature, so that's why they haven't fully released the short. But it's a great film about the effects of PTSD in soldiers and particularly female soldiers. Both of my parents um, struggle with PTSD from active duty. My mom is a military police officer and my father as a major in the Canadian Armed Forces. Thank you both for your service. Um, so yeah, I, I actually, we used my father as a consultant for the script and he kind of let us know what the character might be experiencing um, based on the kind of duty she had seen. And uh, we just wanted to showcase some of the blatant um, unfairness and atrocities that are latent in the system for soldiers coming home uh, from active duty. How nobody really hears what they're saying or really picks up on what they need, even though they're sitting there telling them, you know? Yeah, and it sounds like it's again very something that's very close to your heart, as you said. In fact, uh, yeah. so I, I'm something that I learned in acting a while ago was uh, that if you're feeling the emotion on stage, let's say the audience may not be, and you have to basically have some kind of separation between you and your actual emotions versus what you're showing on screen. So, yeah. in a role like this, how are you able to emotionally separate? Because it's, it's a pretty intense, heavy kind of role, and you've got all of your family background that you're putting into this as well. How are you able to maintain your character through this and not become Ava Blackwell? Yeah, well, so that one was just a real trust bond between me and the director, Javier Augusto Nunez, who I had worked with, uh, most of the crew actually, and some of the cast I had worked with on Figment previously, which was also an incredibly emotionally uh, emotional role for me. And um, Javier was really good about me not sticking to the script. We used a lot of the more emotional scenes uh, they were basically long takes of improvisation where we choreographed a bit of the blocking. And I was pretty aware, like, to be consistent in my physical action. But as far as words I wanted to say or things I needed to get out, um, the character wanted to get out, uh, he was very open to me just just riffing. So I relied on his guidance just to tell me what was playing and hitting and what was not between takes and uh it turned out really good I'm, I'm very proud of that piece and everybody that worked on it with me yeah i hope i can get picked up into a full feature i think it'd be great to see that happen thank you yeah us too 
So now you've done also a bunch of uh, fan films as well. I know it was one you did with Batman and Dexter, who you were a policewoman, mm-hmm. uh, which sounds yeah. like a lot of fun. But I want to ask you about something that I think our fans are going to really like, because they could easily find this on YouTube, and that's Fangirl Fights and the uh, Fangirl yes, Show. Fangirl. So yeah, i got to ask you about, tell us about the Fangirl Show. So Fangirl Fights was a little YouTube thing that um, we did, uh, Margarita Soldatova, Paul Neary, and I. Uh, got together and did uh, shortly before I went union. And actually me going union at the time was the the death of that show, unfortunately, because Margarita was not a Canadian citizen at the time. So we couldn't bring it over into the union, but um, it's a really fun show. We were both getting into stunts at the time and uh, I still do stunts. And Margarita is basically um, one of Canada's like next up and coming stunt performers. She's very talented, and um, we wanted to create some work for ourselves that we could put in front of uh, different stunt coordinators and stuff. So originally, it was just going to be one fight scene, but it's uh, it turned into this whole thing because a bunch of people got excited about it and wanted to help, which is always a great thing. And uh, we basically just choreographed a bunch of different sequences uh, in different costumes and we wanted to put fun characters together that may or may not have fought in the original series that they were in and uh, release it. And if you watch all of the the episodes back to back, you'll realize that we choreographed it for the last frame of each fight is the the first frame of the next fight. So if you keep watching them, you'll just see it's one long continuous fight. Oh, so now I've got to go back and watch all of them since you just told me that in order too. Well, all right. Mm-hmm. I, I know what I'm doing the rest of the day. <laughs> It was really fun. I mean, yeah, it, and it and you know it, it got a nice community together. It got us producing our own work and realizing, you know, like how much work it really is. And it was a really cool, fun experience. And and Paul and I still work together lots. And Margarita came on to EFC uh, movie as well. She had a she was one of the stunt performers in that film. So we're all still working together. It's great. Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is brought to you by Triple Fiction Productions. If you're a Star Trek cosplayer looking for props or toy collector looking to spice up your shelves, Triple Fiction Productions has you covered. Triple Fiction Productions produces affordable and unique 3D printed Trek inspired products from the original series, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, and the movies. You can expect the same amount of care and attention to detail in any of the items in their catalog whether it's a prop replica for use in a fan film, or a part of a cosplay, or accessories and playsets for figures from Playmates, Migos, or Diamond Select. Own your very own tricorder or phaser rifle with working lights, the bridge of the Enterprise E for your Playmates figures, or any other item from countless species and ships from the Star Trek universe. All products are 3D printed in the USA, and are constantly evolving and improving based on fan feedback. To learn more about their products, visit them at triple-fictionproductions.net or on Facebook at facebook.com slash triplefictionproductions. Triple Fiction Productions, taking Star Trek where no 3D printer has gone before. Wrestling is on two levels right now. Either you all in and having a good time with what's going on and enjoying the body slams, headlocks, submissions, and the tope suicidas, or you're just pissed the hell off of what's going on in the wrestling landscape. What kind of wrestling podcast has the same kind of dilemmas? Your guys here at Turnbuckle Tabloid. Jada Rest Santine Olski is here to bring to you the ridiculousness, the buffoonery, the nonsense, and all that that is just straight wrestling. 
We're here with that opinionated New York swag and the ridiculousness that goes along with it. Get us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play Music, Google Podcasts, wherever you get podcasts. Turnbuckle Tabloid, you don't want to miss it. And we're here every week, unlike some wrestling promotions. Laters. We now return to Trek Untold. All right, so Ava, let's talk some Star Trek Discovery now. And uh, yeah, great. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out how to even begin this because your character that you play is pretty mysterious in some ways. Uh, so yes. let's just start from the top uh, about yourself. And can you tell us uh, what was the audition process like for being on Star Trek Discovery? Um, it was actually pretty intensive. And originally, as far as I knew, it was only supposed to be a one day thing. Um, and then they just kept bringing me back. But for that role in particular, uh, there was a little bit of luck. And then, um, as there isn't anything in the acting world and, and quite a bit of skill. So it started off, I wasn't originally, I wasn't the original person cast for this role. Uh, I got a call really last minute from my agent saying, Hey, can you get down to the studio? Uh, they need to see you. And so I dropped everything that I was doing. Wait, let's rewind. Originally, I went to a go-see just to see if they were interested in having um, people. They wanted to see new faces for for season two, at the beginning of season two. And for folks who don't know what a go-see is, do you mind just explaining what that is? Yeah, it's not really an audition. It's kind of like a cattle call where they just line you all up and um, and they take pictures of you and get your sizes and ask you about your experience and resume. So you're not actually performing anything. It's just... It's just a way to get in front of the team so that you're sort of in the pool of faces that they may or may not use later. Um, and it's usually for a different category. I was also actively auditioning for the show. This was just another avenue that I saw as a potential way to get in. And it worked. <laughs> Ultimately, <laughs> it was the way I got it. So uh, about three weeks later after that, I... Uh, I got a call from my agent saying, hey, can you get down to the studio in the next half hour? They need to see you. So I ran down there. Uh, I didn't even know what it was for. She didn't really know. They casting had just asked for me. Um, so I ran down there, talked to the guys at the gates, and they let me through. And I wound my way through Pinewood Studios and found the mill shop. And in the mill shop, which is where they do wardrobe, uh, there was about 10 other girls that were all my height and basically my same body size. And the wardrobe lady came out and said, hey, whoever this costume fits best has to go to prosthetics trailer. And I was like, oh God, there's no way I'm getting this because all the other girls were just a little skinnier. Like they were more model-esque than I was because I, I work out a lot and I have like, you know, I'm tall and thin, but I have a booty and like because <laughs> I do squats and stuff and a lot of the other girls in the line didn't have it. But as they were trying on, I was one of the last in the line, and as they were all trying on the costume, it was too big for them in the hips and in the butt arrows. <laughs> oh, I might have a shot! I might have a shot! <laughs> and so I went into the change room, tried it on, and it fit like a glove. So <laughs> I came out and I was like, sorry, ladies. And it was just one of those moments where I had been that woman in the line where it didn't fit, and I had to go home and, like, you know, it's no fault to anybody. That was the luck, right? <laughs> It fit me. And basically what had happened is that costume had been made for another actress, but she was no longer able to do the role. So they needed to replace somebody ASAP. So like for later that day. So I got in uh, or it was the next day. Uh, so from there I went, I ran in this costume to uh, the prosthetics trailer and um, where James McKinnon plumped Osnolis on my head. 
which is, it's a giant, it's so, I didn't know anything about this role at the time. I didn't know what was happening, what was going on. Like I knew nothing. So I knew the costume fit me. I knew I had to go to prosthetics. They plunked this thing on me. I couldn't see here. I couldn't hardly breathe. And then uh, uh, I think it was James led me across the studio parking lot blind into the studio. I had never seen set before. I didn't know, like little did I know I, I'm heading onto the bridge of the discovery. Like I had no idea. I couldn't see anything. And I think this was partly purposeful because in case I didn't end up, they didn't end up liking me. I could just go away and not really know how closely I had brushed with fate. <laughs> so I got led up these winding staircases completely like blind. And when I say blind inside Osnolis, you you only have about 10% vision. There's basically two pencil hole eraser size holes that are slightly below your eye line um, that let in a little bit of light. So I can basically like when I'm standing in Osnolis, I can hear a little bit of what's going on around me and I can see maybe 10 feet in front of me, I can see the ground. So if somebody crosses in front of me, I can see that. But that's it. Uh, that sounds and, brutal. Normally prosthetics yeah. are actually like shaped for the person who's wearing them. In your case, you're wearing someone else's prosthetic. Yes, I was wearing somebody else's costume and somebody else's prosthetic. But I was like, I was determined. I was like, girl, just deal with it. This is Star Trek. Like, just do it. Um, <laughs> so somebody came up to me. I later found out it was Alex Kirk the the showrunner and there's a and I was wearing the purple head which I, I I later ended up wearing the orange head there's two and um there was two at the time I don't know there's probably more now but uh so it was Alex Kurtzman and he was talking uh, like he was trying to figure out how to interact with me while I was in this prosthetic now and I'm trying to how to, to figure out how to interact with the world so I'm sure it looked like a very Charlie Chaplin moment where I'm like <laughs> in my hands like gesturing wildly trying to be like I can't hear you I'm so sorry I need you to speak up I can't hear you that's basically what it sounds like when I'm speaking outside of Osnolis so basically <laughs> people have to lean in really really close to where my eye holes are and speak into the eye hole and then turn their head to hear what I have to say. Like turn their, their ear towards the eye hole to hear what they have to say. I have to say. So we were all, while we were figuring that out, Tunde was setting up um, the camera and everything. And uh, they did a full camera test with me and they had me like pose and walk around, which was hopeless. I think I, I, I smashed off the smoke spore drive <laughs> once or twice. And I think I'd stumbled over, the captain's chair and whatever but <laughs> I, I was able to get it together because i had never been on this set before i couldn't see anything i'm like just it's this blind alien wandering around the bridge and uh yeah that was my audition process and uh then they they left me in the head for a little while um <laughs> while they discussed and then uh they took me around and did some like um publicity shots with me in the makeup uh which was cool. And then I got a call later on asking if I could come back, which was good. I must have done something right other than smashing off the spore drive. I can't lie. I've been visualizing this entire story you've been telling as you in the Osnolis outfit, but in the Charlie Chaplin tramp outfit with like the hat and the oh mustache. Oh my God. Wouldn't that be awesome? I would pay I money would to see that. that. I would love to see that. I recently just watched uh, one of his old, uh, I think it was, it's called Gold Rush, right? I, re I just rewatched that one. It was so good. Oh, so yeah. good. Such a brilliant artist. <laughs> but we could, this isn't the Charlie Chaplin podcast. That's a different mm -hmm. show entirely. We'll come back to that. I know, sorry, that. that's different. Yeah, yeah, but that's a good <laughs> visualization. 
So uh, I'm trying to clear this up now because you, you mentioned the character. It sounds like the character's name is Osnalis, and that's kind of like seems to be the debate online is no one knows if, if it's the species or the character's name. So is it officially the name of the character? Well, that's not I'm not at liberty to say that. I'll let uh, I'll let the producers kind of clarify that when they want to. But I just know that whenever I am, I will say that whenever they're referring to me, they just refer to me as Osnalis. So. I can't really clarify whether it's species or character name or anything. That's not my, that's not my position. The mystery continues. The mystery continues. So you got to be on set with Anson Mount when he took Helm of Discovery as Captain Pike, as well as Jason Isaacs as Captain Lorca. What was it like working with those two actors? I was not around so much with Lorca. And whenever I was around, it was just, I was always in my head. Like I didn't actually have any interaction. Um, There was, there was a part, there was a, point in time where they started taking my head off between takes which was amazing they kind of rejigged the prosthetics so that it could be removed and put back on and that made my life a lot easier so that's when i was actually able to start interacting with a lot of the other people and making more friends but yeah uh jason isaacs was uh very much like i think i had one day on set with him but you were there for i think most of uh anson mount's appearances as captain all of them yeah so what was that like with with him Yeah, Anson's a really cool dude. I don't think you got to really, unfortunately, interact like directly with either of them uh, ultimately on screen. Unless you watch the season two blooper reel on Blu-ray, you'll see that uh, that my character does get quite the uh, quite the uh, promotion. Oh, okay. Well, now I got a reason to get that Blu-ray too. <laughs> yeah, get that Blu-ray and watch that blooper reel. When you were playing this character, did the directors give you any kind of direction in order to figure out how to play this type of a character? We kind of figured it out together. I worked a lot with, um, I, I I did a lot of my own research. And as I got better, they kind of started paying more attention to me. Does it make sense? Because mm-hmm. basically what happened was they had this really beautiful prosthetic they wanted to use, but nobody really knew how to play it. But the prosthetics guys were really good with it. And uh, and the Q-Take guy, um, Victor, <laughs> he's essentially in charge of all the playback. I, uh, him and I are really good friends now and I would always rush if I knew I was in the frame. As soon as I got my head off, I would go and be like, Hey, can I just watch that last take back? And I really, cause I had no awareness of how this was playing on camera. Cause I really couldn't see anything. So at the beginning it was the prosthetics guys being like, keep your chin down, make sure this and this and da, 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 da. And you'll, and the first like few episodes that I'm in like my posture is all strange when I'm sitting because I really have no idea how they're capturing anything so as I as I was learning um watching playback I got to understand like okay if that camera's over there and that camera's over there and this lens is in this is exactly what it means this is how they're going to shoot it so therefore they're going to be seeing this part of me it's a lot of angles and understanding your posture and yes you have to just be good at all times and be in character but you start to understand like what the mask, how the mask emotes, if that makes sense. Because how how I would how I would uh, give surprise or 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 express surprise as myself doesn't necessarily play in Osnalis. So I have to heighten that or or turn my head another way or change my posture in a different way so it's much more apparent. Does that make sense? Yeah, so it's much more body language for your character as opposed to another. Oh yeah, oh yeah, it's total body ac- acting, which I love. That's what I love about prosthetics because I'm very physical anyway. So I naturally ha- put a lot of physicality into my characters, and Osnalis is like a, it, it, she's a great example of that. I just refer to her as she because I'm a she. They have never the gender has never been released or anything, but I just say she. 
Now, we spoke with Harry Judge a few episodes ago, and he played a Tellwright on a bunch of different episodes, as well as in uh, one of the short treks. And he talked about how important breathing was while being inside the costume, as well as staying yeah. focused so you don't have a freak out while you're in that crazy getup. Uh, yeah. Did you have a similar experience to that? Yeah, uh, especially because they had me up and moving around a lot uh, towards the end. I don't know if you noticed, but at, in the season finale of season two, I actually am full out running across the bridge in that prosthetic, which was like, it was, that was a crazy stunt in and of itself. And just regulating your breathing. Cause in, in prosthetics, like air doesn't circulate the same way it does. And especially not in Osnalis. Every prosthetic is different. Osnalis is, um, I've got like, it's, I've got like a little pocket in front of my face. So the mask doesn't sit directly on my face. It's not adhered to my skin. I've got a little pocket where I have some breathing room, but if I talk too much, if I run too much, I kind of run out of air. Like I'm not in, I'm not in danger of suffocating, but I can definitely, I felt lightheaded a few times when they've taken it off because I've been overzealous about trying to talk or move around or something. Oh yeah. That sounds brutal. <laughs> it's fine. It's fun. So you mentioned earlier that you spoke with Doug Jones and he kind of gave you some information. Uh, can you talk to us about Doug Jones and what, he, what information he's given to help you out playing this type of character? Doug is just the best. Can I just like frame this whole conversation by saying I have never met an actor I mean, this is true of all of the cast in Star Trek, but Doug and I really bonded. And Doug is just one of the most wonderful human beings I've met. He is one of the most patient, capable, sensitive, and yet grounded and, and, and firm people I've ever met. He is so generous with his knowledge and his time and his energy, and he's just always there. And being just just watching him being in the Saru prosthetics day in and day out for many seasons, it was a lesson in and of itself. Um, because I had the pleasure of being able to be taken in and out of the Osnala's prosthetics. Doug sat in those all day, every day. And he ate lunch in those and everything, right? So he was in it from call to wrap. And he was often the first one on set and the last one off. So just watching his endurance and watching how he handled being in it and days where he was like, you know, clearly like Doug was never clearly over it. But like days where I would not want to be in that prosthetic for that long and just understanding how he's dealing with that and, and keeping such a positive professional attitude and always doing the, his work to the best of his ability, which is excellence every single time. It was it was just such a lesson. A lesson in endurance and, and mitigating your own attitude. Was there any advice that Doug gave you that particularly helped you playing as Nalus? Just learning. It was, yeah, he, he, he told me to basically moderate myself. You know what I mean? He, he came over to me one day and he was like, Ava, this isn't about anybody else but you. It's your experience and it's what you're dealing with when you're in these prosthetics. So you know best, basically. And him, at, like, coming from his position, giving me that authority just kind of over my own experience in it was just, it was, like, such a huge blessing. I really hope I get to actually talk to Doug one day because he just sounds like such a sage person to speak with. He, oh, God, I've never met another human being like him. He's amazing. I'm gushing a little bit, but hi, Doug. Love you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm gushing, too, so it's okay. Okay, cool. So I read an interview a while back where you talked about how the set of Discovery was unlike other sets you've been on. So can you tell us what makes it so different? Everybody's so nice. That's the first thing. And Sinequa, uh, she's uh, she's the one who said, like, she's one of the ones that you see 
the most setting that tone. And she's the number one on the call sheet. She's obviously Michael Burnham. She's the lead of that show and she sets the tone. And she is so professional, so outgoing, so pleasurable to be around, so nice and always focused. Like Doug, she has really long days on set and she is always there. And watching her and Tunde work together is amazing. And Tunde, I'm talking about Ola Tunde writer, director, and executive producer. Um, they work together quite well. and Just, like, there's there's so many cool things that go on on set where, like, just even just down to the way that people interact with each other between departments. Normally on set, in a, a show of that level, you get a lot of attitude between people or, like, don't talk to that person because they don't, they don't interact with people of your level. Like, that kind of feeling and there's none of that on track the ethos there is we're one big family we're all in this together everything for like the good of the show and the story and there's no small parts so most of our listeners are going to recognize you as the asnalis but you also got to be a klingon briefly can you tell us a little bit about that yeah, so I was never actually a Klingon on the show. I uh, You're an unofficial Klingon, basically. Yeah, I'm an honorary Klingon. So for uh, IMATS, which is a makeup show, Hugo and Chris Bridges and um, a bunch of the other guys, they were presenting uh, two of their Klingons to, for the Toronto uh, makeup artists. And Hugo asked me to be his model. So it was uh, Diane Campbell was uh, James McKinnon's model, and they're now engaged happily in uh, in L.A., and uh, Hugo and I are not engaged. <laughs> <laughs> not dating, obviously. He's married with beautiful children. But uh, we are really good friends, and that was our first real bonding experience. I came out, and I was his model, and he put together a really cool costume and prosthetics, and then I was able to run around and do kicks in the air and poses with all the Klingon weapons, which was really, really cool. Yeah, there's a lot of great photos. Looks like you had a lot of fun playing the Klingon. Uh, which, oh, so much fun. Which do you like better, being Osnalis or being a Klingon? Oh my god, I like Osnalis. The Klingons look so beautiful, and but those prosthetics were, that was a lot. I would have done it for the show, for sure, but um, yeah, I definitely, I don't know, they both have great things about them, though. Like, Klingon culture is so cool. Alright, well, it's not a good day to die, because our interview isn't over yet, so... Uh, okay, sure. Moving ahead, moving ahead beyond Star Trek, uh, I would like to ask you about stunt performance. That's now something that you've been getting into much more deeply. Uh, you mentioned it when you're doing the fangirl fights as well. Um, but yeah. talk to us about your interest in stunt performing. Yeah, so I've always been interested in stunt performing, and I've always kind of trained for it. But I was, for the most part, I was always in it like just as a stunt actor to be able to do my own stunts. Which, because being a stunt performer is, it's so much. It's a huge. It's a whole career within itself. Like I really give so much props to anybody who is a professional stunt performer. Um, what those guys do is incredible. Um, but recently I have been doing a lot more of it and I have been focusing more and more on it because I guess because of the mix of my height and prosthetics and ability and kind of willingness to do a lot of it. Um, I started stunt doubling this year on a show. It's on my IMDb, a show that will be coming out called uh, Jupiter's Legacy where I worked with all of the Action Factory guys and Max White and Phil Silvera and those guys, they were my uh, coordinators. Really cool team of people. Um, really amazing, professional, high-caliber, high-class people. Like, just really first-class work that they do on a show. 
And I'm really excited for that to come out. And actually, the role that I was stunt doubling for, this is often how it goes for me, I find. The role I was stunt doubling for, I was actually up for that role. And it was down between me, the actress who got it, and one other actress. Uh, and I didn't get it, but I got the stunt doubling role, which was really cool. Yeah, I'm very excited for Jupiter's Legacy also. Oh, the comics are so good. They're so good. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm excited for it. So Yeah, me uh, too. I mean, I'm so excited for that show. I'm sure you probably can't tell us too much more about it though, because I imagine it's all very lock and key right now. Super lock and key, just like uh, just like anything that hasn't been released on Trek yet. Unfortunately, yep. <laughs> and, and more moreover, I would just hate to ruin the surprise because there's some great surprises for everybody on that show. Like I'm super stoked for it. And that's why I'm also I'm not even going to ask you if you're going to be on season three of Discovery. I'm just going to assume that you will be, but I know you can't deny or confirm those allegations. Yes, so I'll I just... can see. I can see how you might possibly think that, but I can neither confirm nor deny. All right. Perfect. Answer. <laughs> so let's talk about something else you got in the works now as well. And that's something you alluded to earlier in our interview as well. And that's uh, an upcoming MMA movie you're doing, which is EFC. And for folks who don't know, uh, I used to be the fight nerd. I used to cover mixed martial arts and UFC and that kind of stuff for many, many years. Uh, and so seeing that you were doing this, I was like, well, it was like my kindred spirit. Now I got to hear about EFC. <laughs> yes, we are like kindred spirits. That's a great way of putting it. So what, what can you tell us about EFC? Uh, what, what, what do we need to know? Yeah. What's out there for it? So I can talk pretty freely about EFC, uh, which is great. So it's a, it's a female MMA fight film. The tagline it's, is, it's not just another fight. It's the fight for everything. And it follows, um, the lead is Carly Rose, and she plays uh, Cassidy Jones. And I, I am her sister, Scarlett Jones. And together we started this um, fight ring called EFC, which is obviously inspired by another very popular <laughs> MMA um, ring that we have here in, in, in real life, in reality. And uh, it follows the journey of Cassidy Jones. She, she's got to basically fight against everything to prove that she is the one to win this title. And uh, I kind of play the voice of doubt. I'm sort of the antagonist in this film because it, the, I'm, I'm actually not alive in this movie. I'm just an apparition in her head. I have passed on. And um, I give her every reason why she can't do it. And she has to fight against me to prove that she can. So what kind of martial arts background do you have? So I did Shotokan Karate growing up. That was my that was my introduction into the into the martial arts world. I got my black belt when I was uh, sixteen, and then I went to Holland, as we discussed earlier. And then uh, I did a bunch of different uh, fighting for film and stage and actor work, uh, a lot of weapons work. And then I started training a little bit in boxing, in Muay Thai, some jujitsu. Um, and now I do, I study, I'm back studying Shotokan and then also studying a little bit of just overall MMA to keep myself sharp. So of those many martial arts, which one has been kind of the hardest to transition into your natural fighting style? Oh yeah, uh, for sure Western style boxing. Like I'm not built like a boxer and it's, it, it's really not intuitive to me, but I'm getting better at it. That's interesting to me because I know like a lot of folks who do typically stand up striking martial arts when they get to the ground, if they have to do jujitsu, it's oh, like I a whole love, different world for them. I love jujitsu. I love it. I think it's because I'm tall and gangly. And I also just <laughs> I, like, honestly, I just, I love jujitsu. It's pretty natural to me. I love it. And I've been very blessed with some great instructors for jujitsu. So, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm no expert at it, but it is one of my favorites. And honestly i would do it a lot more if it wasn't for the fact that i always leave so bruised because i roll and when i roll i'm pretty intense right 
So <laughs> it just gets intense when you roll. If you've ever rolled, you know that it gets intense. Do you prefer gi or no gi? Oh, I like both. I really like both because honestly, if you ever have to use jujitsu, you're not going to be in a gi. But the gi makes it easier for all the grips and stuff. So I, I like to mix it up. Now, have you considered doing any grappling tournaments or anything like that in Canada? Yeah, I'd like to, but I'm just always so like, I don't want to break anything or I don't want to go to set with a black eye. You know, that's the only <laughs> thing that holds me back. Like, and that's why I don't train jujitsu all the time because I can't show up to set with like bruises all over my, all over myself, you know, but I would love, like if I ever come down to, if I go down to LA, I'm definitely going to train like at all the dojos down there and everything. And I'm so excited. All right. So outside of Star Trek, outside of EFC, Jupiter's Legacy, what else is Ava Blackwell working on these days? Well, right now during, we haven't even really addressed that we're doing this uh, interview in the middle of a global pandemic, have we? <laughs> dark, dark days. Dark, dark days. But you know what? In I want to just say like these days, I'm really working on myself. And I'd love to ask you afterwards just a little bit about New York in this time. But uh, here in Toronto, we're doing self-isolation. Uh, I've been alone in my apartment for the last two months. Um and my martial arts dojo has been keeping me sane through um, through Zoom classes, which is obviously like just doing karate in my in my living room, which is really fun. Uh, I've been working on a lot of Shakespeare stuff. Um, we're currently writing. My team and I are writing a few different sci-fi scripts. Um, we have a proof of concept that we're just finishing for one called the Bulldog Effect. It's a very cool sci-fi project and world that we are creating. I'm really excited about it. I've uh, been working on a few different Shakespeare monologues um, and uh, preparing for when the next few projects that I have coming out are going to be released because I can't say too much about it, but I am in a AAA video game that will be coming out uh, later this year if COVID hasn't um hasn't uh delayed it too much maybe it'll be early 2021 now and a few other network projects that are coming out so just getting all that stuff together and my and my paperwork to head down to the states as well well since you mentioned that you're doing some shakespearean stuff i can't not ask you this have you seen any of patrick stewart's sonnet readings lately oh no i haven't i i gotta i gotta like go check them out somebody else was telling me about them um what's your favorite one? Oh, I, oh honestly i the, the one that we're I think he just put out yesterday, which, uh, you know, we're recording this episode here on, uh, April 30th. And, uh, I think it's Sonnet 41. Uh, honestly, I just like it the most because his cat just shows up and just like doesn't want to get out of the shot. Oh, great. Typical cat. So yeah, that's, that's just my favorite now, just purely because of the cat. Yeah. Awesome. I'm, I've been working on Sonnet 116, which is, uh, uh, love is an ever fixed mark. Yeah. It's, of course, just a real treat hearing Patrick Stewart do he's anything. Amazing. Like he he's could... doing anything, but yeah, especially Shakespeare. And I know that he often quoted Shakespeare um throughout his star trek days you know it was always great when he dropped a little line or two in and i was like oh yeah have you spent any time binge watching any trek stuff just to kind of expand your trek knowledge i uh do that as much as possible i am going back through uh tng i'm partway through season uh what episode am i on let me check my netflix Sorry, really quick. I think I'm on episode four or five. It's not coming up here right now, but I'm on episode four or five of uh, the first season. And I've just and I watched the original series through for the first time uh, at the beginning of this COVID thing. So pretty awesome. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. So Ava, have you ever watched uh, Deep Space Nine or Voyager? Since I know you grew up with Enterprise and Next Gen, but have you seen either of those two series? 
I've seen bits and pieces of them all, um, but not like sat down and watched them all the way through, which is something I'm trying to get through too at the moment, right? Okay, yeah, I hope you do. I mean, DS9, I think, is probably my favorite, so I hope you get to experience that. And that you also get to see Janeway and Seven of Nine in action on Voyager. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep. Cool. So, Ava, last question for you today. What is the best thing about being part of the Star Trek universe? It's really just being part of the Trek family, both on and off set. Uh, I haven't been to a convention yet, but I have signed my first official batch of Osnalis cards that are available through Rittenhouse. That was incredible. And um, I'm really looking forward to being able to go to conventions and meet with some of the fans and, you know, experience the, the, the Trek family that way, too. You know, I, I totally lied about that being my last question because I have to bring this interview back now full circle. <laughs> since you said you grew up with your mom watching Enterprise and Next Gen, what did your mom think about when she found out you were on Star Trek? Oh, she screamed. <laughs> she was so excited. She was more excited than I was. She She's just, it like, it made her world. And she knows more about the characters and, and the show than I think I even do. But when you told her that your face is going to be completely covered up in a giant prosthetic helmet, what, how did she react to that? My mom used to be a makeup artist, so she was, like, just even more enamored and thrilled. She's like, oh, my God, cool. Like, can, how do they do it? She had so many questions. Was, she, she was, like, more excited about my character's mask being on the show than me being on the show. I was like, mom, I'm here, too. <laughs> typical mom. Yeah, typical mom. No, she's awesome. All right, well... There's now reason to pick up the Discovery Blu-ray if you haven't, and that's to see what this promotion for Osnalis is all about. Mm-hmm. I got something to look forward to as well now. So, Ava, thank you so much for your time today, and uh, I look forward to hopefully seeing you continue to serve Starfleet in Season 3 Discovery. Thank you, Matt. I hope you have a wonderful day and that you stay safe down there in New York. You too. Thank you. So that was our chat today with Ava Blackwell, and I think it's safe to say that she's going to have a bright future in whatever she wants to do. She has an indomitable spirit that's going to be a great asset in helping her succeed in whatever venture she goes into, be it acting, stunts, or, hey, who knows? She's clearly a person with a really good, solid head on her shoulders, and you have to be, be playing a character like the Osnalis, because you can't even see with that kind of head on your shoulders. The mystery of Osnalis, and whether or not that's the character's name or species, continues with no real answer. At this time, Alchemy Studios has referred to the alien as Osnalis, and the director and executive producer of Discovery, Olatunde Osunsanmi, has referred to both of the aliens as Osnalis, because there has been, in fact, more than one that's appeared on screen. So there is, as of now, no real answer yet to this mystery. For all we know, maybe they don't even have names like we do. Maybe it's just some kind of hive title. It beats me, but whatever, or whoever Osnalis is, it's definitely one of the most memorable aliens on Star Trek Discovery. And that's saying a lot for a show that's got a pretty amazing makeup department. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Trek Untold. If you haven't already, please subscribe to this show. And if you can, leave a review and rating. We would appreciate it very much if you did. You can also follow us on social media. Just look for Trek Untold on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd love to hear from you there. And of course, we'd like to hear your thoughts about this week's episode. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can check out patreon.com slash trekuntold to learn how you can keep our ship operating at full power. And you can also check out some of our merchandise at teespring.com slash stores slash trek untold once again thank you to our sponsor triple fiction productions and shout out to scott ray for setting up this interview if you'd like to book this week's guest for a convention appearance or an autograph signing event email scott at scottray 67 at aol.com this has been trek untold i'm matthew kaplowitz and until next time fortune favors the bold <laughs>